0: modern 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 Modern. we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make
1: that a double
0: modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 234 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host eric koslick Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Andrew Marinoff. He is one of the co-founders of Chinola Liqueur, which is an innovative, I mean truly innovative, passion fruit liqueur. Recently, Chinola has been taking the bar world by storm, but before we discover why, I think it's only fair that I pause and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Saturn. If you'd like to make the original recipe for this tropical drink, you'll need one and a half ounces of gin, any gin will do, but I like a classic dry gin in this application. One half ounce lemon juice, one half ounce orgeat, which is a spiced almond syrup, one quarter ounce passion fruit puree. Keep that passion fruit ingredient as we go here. And finally, one quarter ounce of velvet falarnum, which is almost like an inverted orgeat. heavy on the spice, light on the almonds. Combine these ingredients in a blender with a cup of crushed ice. Blend until smooth, then pour into a large rocks glass or tiki mug over more crushed ice. To garnish the Saturn, You're going to have a little bit of fun. Basically, what you want to do is you want to grab a nice pithy stripe of lemon or lime peel and use a cocktail pick to form a Saturn's rings shape around a brandied or Luxardo cherry before finally balancing that on the rim of the glass. I'm going to walk you slowly through how to do this because it's a little bit difficult to picture in the audio format. What you're going to do is you're going to pass the cocktail pick through the very center of the citrus stripe then through the very center of the cherry, leaving a little bit of space, right? Saturn's rings aren't all up in there, and a little bit of space between them. And then you're going to finally take the two loose ends of that citrus peel, form a closed loop, and pass the cocktail pick through where they overlap in order to secure them. Just Google Saturn cocktail, and uh, you'll see a lot of awesome examples of this garnish. Now, Aside from the cool garnish, there's a lot to love about the Saturn cocktail. I've seen it popping up on a lot of drink menus around D.C. recently, and honestly, its flavor profile kind of reminds me of a very sophisticated Pez flavor, like those little hard candies. But for our purposes today, the most interesting thing about the Saturn cocktail is that you could skip the quarter ounce of passion fruit puree, and you could even omit the half ounce of lemon juice in favor of a simple three-quarter ounce pour of Chinola Liqueur. As Andrew explains in our interview, Chinola operates almost like a shelf-stable citrus juice, but it packs that fragrant, juicy passion fruit flavor as well, and to understand why this is such a powerful tool in the hands of a savvy bartender, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this flavorful entrepreneurial conversation with Chinola Liqueur co-founder, Andrew Marinoff, some of the topics we explore include Andrew's family legacy in the spirits world, including his very real ties to Canadian whiskey magnates and Prohibition-era New York bootleggers, how Chinola started in a blender in a Dominican Republic apartment and blossomed into a category-defying cocktail ingredient thanks to some old-world European liqueur expertise, why many people are under the mistaken impression that passion fruit is pink, and what the Chinola team is doing on the agricultural front to ensure that their fruits remain delicious, all-natural, and sustainable. We also dig into the very important ways that Andrew and his team actively partner with the community in the DR so that they're not merely showing up and appropriating a native fruit, then exporting its flavor to the U.S. market. Along the way, we learn why passion fruit evokes a feeling of nostalgia in many people, myself included, the surprising similarities between chinola and a product that many people call bartender's ketchup, why the Spanish word for one who gossips might come up at your next brunch, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and tasting with Andrew. For those of you out there who love hearing about how brands and businesses get built, this interview is definitely for you. But more than anything, I love how Andrew models a growth mindset by sharing how his thinking about various issues has evolved over the roughly seven years he spent building Chinola. Is it easy to appreciate the rich orange color, complex flavor, and beautiful packaging of a bottle of Chinola? Sure. But I think understanding the journey these passion fruits take from vine to glass is going to make each sip just a little bit tastier. With that, please enjoy this fascinating interview and tasting with Andrew Marinoff, co-founder of Chinola Liqueur. Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
1: Awesome, Eric. I appreciate you having me on today.
0: So let's kick this off as we always do. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners and just explaining in brief who you are and what you do?
1: Absolutely. So my name is Andrew Marinoff and I am the co-founder and chairman of Chinola Passion Fruit Liqueur. You know, I think some would say that I was kind of born into the food and beverage space. I have spent probably the last 20 plus years hopping around the world, trying food, beverage, working in the front of house, back of house, between kitchens and bars, uh, you know, opening up restaurants in New York City, lounges to nightlife, uh, did a little stint on the marketing side of things, ended up studying food, beverage, international business in college, and by the time I was done, I had really worked almost every sector of industry possible, got my disciplines down. And I thought that was crucial because you need to know what people go through in every position of the house in order to know how to build the right house. From there, I joined uh, Proximo Spirits, the Jose Cuervo family. I was 25, naive and young and uh, was promised opportunity to do business development and mergers and acquisitions. And I took that to heart and really ran with it. In fact, uh, for them, I just opened up the Great Jones Distilling Co. in Manhattan, the first distillery in 100 years. And why that's important is 100 years ago, my great-grandfather was bootlegging alcohol in New York City, uh, specifically on the whiskey side. So it was really fun for me. And along that journey, I had learned enough to start my own venture fund called Dispack Ventures with the idea of disrupting industries with impact investing, helping young entrepreneurs as I was on the buyer side and I wanted to be on the seller side of things. Uh, and built everything from there. And Chinola was one of the first projects I ever uh, worked on It throughout my fund.
0: Yeah. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. It sounds like you really value the breadth of experience that you got coming up through all of those various um, hospitality experiences. And uh, I really like the point that you made about understanding all of the positions in the house in order to build the right house. And I think that as we progress through this conversation, one of the main questions, perhaps the only question I really need us to answer today is why this particular product in front of us, Chinola, is the right house for the flavor passion fruit and I think as we go here we're gonna we're gonna kind of uncover exactly why that is um, but I, I wonder if you might just kind of give us a few more highlights about this notion of you being born into the industry. Um, you know maybe you can start with your grandfather bootlegging whiskey in Manhattan a hundred years ago and uh, then you know kind of talk a little bit about um, you know some of the other legacy um, kind of family inputs what it was like to grow up in that space I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there were big shoes to fill, to say the least. On my mom's side, four generations ago was Hiram Walker. Uh, he was the dynasty behind Canadian Club whiskey, probably one of the most famous bootleggers, gangsters up in Canada in Walkerville. Uh, what's funny is that on my dad's side, my great grandpa was over in New York uh, selling his whiskey throughout Prohibition. There are a lot of stories I was told, a lot more that I was not told, and. You know, my dad always says, this is the book that we'll write and we'll burn and the world will never know. And then Boardwalk Empire came out and people got a decent idea of what was going on back then. And what was amazing is, then you get to my grandpa, Harvard Business School, top of his class, became the Attorney General in New York. And the joke in our family is the first 12 people he put behind bars were my great grandpa's best friends. So (laughs) from, from there we went on, they joined forces, Prohibition ended, and they started the first small distribution company. And what's amazing is my great-grandpa built it, uh, my grandpa grew it, and my dad maintained it and built it into what it is today. So really, when you think about it, I'm the fourth generation on my dad's side in the spirits business. And what's funnier than that is my sister is actually a master distiller out in Greenport, Long Island, has her own distillery. So we're always competing head-to-head, trying to uh, pay homage to the legacy and the rich history that we have, and it's, uh, it's a fun and exciting time for us.
0: Yeah. It's been a while since I've actually tuned into Boardwalk Empire. Is Canadian Club the bottles that are washing up on the beach in the intro sequence? So
1: what's funny is they actually would take Canadian Club whiskey over Lake Canada in boats that were labeled to Cuba, which obviously anyone that knew geography knew that that was not going to be the case, but they kept a lot of name brands out of there. Canadian Club was probably one of the most prevalent whiskeys in America coming down from Canada. They had a massive distillery in Walkerville. They made a ton of what they called hooch back then uh, and spread wide across the US.
0: Crazy, crazy. Um, Well, You know, the family legacy question ties into the origin story of Chinola because uh, you were not alone in crafting this product, as I understand it. So I'm wondering if you might tell me uh, a little bit about your partner, Robert, uh, who seems to have come into this project with his own family legacy and maybe... In the process, you can talk about the Dominican Republic and why that's an important place for the story of Chinoa.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Robert Lehner was an Austrian man living down in the Dominican Republic. He came from 11 generations of Austrians making fresh fruit liqueurs and wines dating back to the 1600s. What was amazing about it is they would make them for the magistrate back in the day. His style was old European classic. Uh, Liqueurs, winemaking techniques, and he brought that down to the lush terrain of the Dominican Republic in a very, very impressive way. When we had found him, and actually it's funny, I have two co founders, uh, Robert and Mike, and they had found him and he was making these liqueurs in his apartment in a blender. He had several different flavors out there, and the one that really graveled to them uh, was the passion fruit. It was this beautiful essence, really honed in on the Dominican Republic. And at that point, uh, they brought back a bottle to our other partners over at the Broken Shaker. Normally, the Broken Shaker guys didn't really like any of the products that were brought to them. They were very harsh because they were just ranked, you know, top fifteen bars in the world. They tasted this and said, "Guys, you got you got to put this into a bottle that I bring into my bar. We we want to do this." And so we were super excited on the flavor profile, where that really stemmed from the liqueur category. Because if you would ask me ten years ago, would I be making a liqueur? I would say you're out of your mind. You know, Rob Cooper was the real first guy behind it in St. Germain, and, and he got laughed out of a lot of rooms. But he was doing something that no one had seen before using real products, using the right flavors, uh, using or, organic ingredients, really creating something that he called bartender's ketchup. And where chinola really, I fell in love with it. I get bartender's ketchup, but I've worked behind plenty of bars, and simple syrup's the one thing we have. And so, St. Germain came across as a great flavor, but on the sweet side, and why Chinol really gravel to it was the idea of having citrus in a bottle. You know, having citrus behind the bar goes bad, it's expensive, etc. So how do we create something that's shelf-stable, that is a real amazing addition to any cocktail? Uh, and that's where that stemmed from.
0: That's really, really interesting. I, I was wondering how to back ourselves into a discussion about flavor, and you just sort of Plopped it right in my lap. But before we start talking about the flavor here, before I pour a little sample here, it is it is Friday after all. It may be only about ten thirty in the morning, but it is Friday, so uh, I'm gonna take a little a little sip here. Uh, before we do that, could you just give us uh, situate us in time and place? What year roughly? Was this when um, Robert was discovered making this in the blender? And just give us the 411 on the broken shaker. Where was that? And what year was it that they were like, you know, top 15 bar in the world?
1: Yeah. So one of our partners was actually down there working on a coconut project. This was probably about seven years ago. So think 2015, 2016. And at, at that point, this was just a concept, an idea like I said, being made in a blender in an apartment somewhere down in the Dominican Republic. And the bottle was probably brought back about a year later once we thought it might have legs. The Broken Shaker guys were friends of my other partner, Robert Pallone, uh, who had worked in the industry for 10, 15 years at that point in all other positions as well. And that's where we really said, hey, we might have something here. When you fast forward about two, three years, and when I I kid you not, 2,000 variations of this product we finally had something that we were comfortable putting into a bottle. Well, it was funny and, you know, it's going to be hard cycling through the two Roberts, but Robert Pallone, my partner, was very adamant about not putting something inferior into a bottle and bringing it to market. Me, I was young, naive, and said, let's get, let's get this out there. Every bartender needs to try this. This is going to be the perfect blend for every back bar, every menu placement, and maybe even at-home mixology, making simpler cocktails, almost being the gateway into people entering the mixology world. And so that was the real validation. I would say 2018, 2019, the three of us said, all right, we're going to do this. We launched Miami, we launched New York, and we were off to the races. Uh, We started getting a lot of great feedback, a lot of momentum, and uh, took it
0: from there. So I just had my first taste. and. I'm really glad that you brought up the sort of umbrella notion of citrus in a bottle before I did that because most people who have experienced tropical drinks of some sort have whether they know it or not consumed passion fruit in some form. Generally, uh it Tiki bars, that's going to take the form of passion fruit puree or some sort of syrup in which the the flavor of the passion fruit puree as an ingredient is infused and then filtered and strained out. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what options were available to bartenders before Chinola came out. So, like in, it's not like passion fruit was completely new to the to the drinks world, but what were the options that were there before? And and I guess how was Chinola and how is Chinola an improvement on those options? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I think it's a great question. You know, we invented the world's first shelf stable fresh fruit liqueur. We did not invent the world's first passion fruit liqueur. We will never say that we did there are a few other ones you know i don't want to say that they're artificial but they are they come with high fructose corn syrup they come with flavoring passion fruit is orange people for a long time thought it was pink because of the world's largest passion fruit liqueur brand out there that everyone knew at least on the trade and so the the real idea here was as a bartender i'd have to get a puree and i'd get it as a concentrate i then have to dilute it down add sugar store it and if i didn't use it within several weeks it went bad the second one was an already pre-made ready to go one. And then my cocktail costs went up because it wasn't shelf stable. And eventually that would go bad too, it came expensive. And where I saw the real fill for this was they went out of stock very often. So I put something on my menu and also I couldn't get the puree. So then didn't have to use the liqueur, but the liqueur didn't balance the cocktail because passion fruit naturally has a very high pH level. So it's very acidic. If you have a raw passion fruit down in the Dominican, you normally throw a little sugar onto it in order to be able to eat it. I eat it straight because I love that puckering that my, the mouthfeel gets. But if you change between the two or three liqueurs that were out there, you have to change your whole recipe up. And it wasn't sustainable. And we really saw the hole and the void in the market. And I think our first strategy, which was great for us and great for our distributors, was I wasn't going after the liqueurs. I was going after the purees. It was the closest thing to our product. And why bartenders loved it is now all of a sudden you're getting a alcohol content, so you can use less of something else, you're getting something that's shelf stable, that's reliable, and that blends in really easily with the drinks you already have on your menu. After that, we try to go after the other liqueurs, and we need to rebalance all the cocktails. So we already knew what we were getting ourselves into. Thankfully, we had some amazing consultants like Gabe and Guy from The Broken Shaker, who really showed us, hey, if you have them dial this back, put this in and change this, slight tweaks with ingredients that they already have. This is going to come forward as a much better cocktail. And the other liqueur companies, they do tend to get a little upset with me. I do blind taste people, put the three next to each other. And 99.9% of the time, I win. The 0.1% of the time that we tend to lose is when one of the brand reps is there yelling at me saying, can you just stop doing this to us? It's not a fair competition. (laughs) And I don't blame them. I I think that having artificially high fructose corn syrup liqueurs was a big trend. It has always been a big trend, but I don't see the future going there. People want to know what they're putting in their bodies. They want to know what they're eating. They want to know that the brands that they're consuming have paid fair wages, have done the right thing, and that are better for them. And I think that's what we really put into a bottle.
0: Yeah, the flavor profile of the Chinola that I've taken a few small sips of here is both very familiar uh, and also very... Um, it, it seems very grounded, if that makes sense. So what I mean by grounded is sort of referring to the naturalness or agriculturalness of it. Um, I think that one place where you really struck gold with this is having Robert Laner with that old world winemaking and liqueur making tradition what what that kind of lends itself to is being able to really pull out the essence of the fruit that's being used who does it better than european winemakers i can't i can't think of too many people who are as good at coaxing the true essence out of a fruit I I think it's, I I really want to underscore the point here that you mentioned just a moment ago that you weren't really necessarily in launching a passion fruit liqueur. You weren't looking to compete with other passion fruit liqueurs. You were really looking to compete with the fresh like puree that did not have any alcohol. And it's just, it's so interesting to look at this from a purely business perspective, because it's almost like you were given two options and you invented a third option. And I think that is what bartenders really responded to because what bartender doesn't like finding a new product that allows them to do two things better than they had been doing before. It allows them to improve on their shelf stability and it allows them to, you know, kind of like you said, you know, it's got alcohol in it so they can use less of the rum, just dope in a little bit more of this Chinola and suddenly, you know, you've got a one plus one equals three cocktail in front of you. So can you, I guess, now that we understand the, the, what got the flywheel turning for Chinola, can you, can you talk a little bit more about how the passion fruits are grown and sourced? Because you, know, you mentioned fair wages uh, just a moment ago, and I'm curious to know how you get this product from you know, the vine to the bottle.
1: Yeah. I, you know I, I grew up, my mom was a biodynamic farmer. So growing up in my household, you know, I, was, I was drinking kombucha 10 years before it was a cool thing to do. She was growing things in a sustainable way, and that really resonated with me. When we went down to the Dominican Republic and I saw how they were doing things, they were using biochar. They were not using tractors to clear land. They'd fence in pigs, and the pigs would pull out all the roots. They were growing, and I use organic as a very loose term because we are not certified organic, but we follow all the rules to a T. We follow biodynamic to a T. So although we do not put it on our bottle because we cannot claim it, Those were things that were really important to us. Uh, Down there we have our own honeybees and the honeybees pollinate the fruit and the honey is amazing. In a sense, and I don't like the term monocropping, we spread out and we put different types of trees and plants and everything around our vines. We have our own nursery uh, where it's vine to bottle is what I like to say. Uh, It's like a farm to table type uh, mantra and down there is really important to us. Everything is done by hand. We have donkeys, horses on the various farms. And I I think the second part was, like I said, taking care and supporting the community. If you do not build the right community and you do not help the local people out, which is a very large trend and something that feels very important to me, then what are you really doing down there? So our first instinct was to go down there. How do we blend our own passion fruit together? How do we get it? And we found this botanist and this botanist was already doing it. He was taking passion fruit vines from around the world, blending them together in a natural way not modified grafting vines together and came out these passion fruits that were three four times the size of a normal passion fruit which was incredible they are yellow in color and i think most people in the u.s are used to them being red uh, or purple if you can even find them and they're, they're rather large they have a higher bricks content which means a higher sugar content a higher ph content but the actual process of growing passion fruit is really difficult you really only have about a day or two to make sure they get pollinated. And so one of my partners, Robert, goes down there and does it by hand. He says it gives him peace and joy to sit there in a field and pollinate passion fruits by hand. I thought it was super weird until I tried it, and I was like, this is very calming. <laughs> this is very satisfying. So we'd gone down there with the anticipation that we were going to be farmers. We're going to go down there and, and farm our own fruit. And realized that's a terrible idea. Why would we come down there to take away jobs from people when they grow so much better than we could ever do it. And so we handed out the vines to different uh, different farmers, uh, had them start growing for us, and that's where we built the community, is that people feel they feel proud of the product because they were part of the journey to get there.
0: There's a couple things I'd love to dig into there. I mean, the coincidences and the, I guess the the kismet involved in all this, like the fact that your your mom was a biodynamic farmer, right? Like, like I'm sure when you were growing up drinking that kombucha, you weren't like plotting your path. You're like, okay, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna fuse my distilling background and this this weird like biodynamic. It wasn't intentional. In other words, Uh, it's it's just really interesting to hear how all of these little details kind of lined up and fell into place, down to the fact that you were able to locate a botanist who found a natural way to, you know, not breed, but kind of graft your way into a cultivar of passion fruit that has both higher bricks, which is great for making alcohol, or you know, uh, creating a stable liqueur, um, and also higher pH, which is the, the pH is obviously what allows you to kind of use this as citrus in a bottle, right? Which is obviously very important to certainly the way you launched. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're a regular listener of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. You've heard me talk about near country quite a bit over the last year, and I have another exciting announcement. They've got cheese, guys. Not only do Adam and his team work with a bunch of awesome local farmers and fishermen here in the Mid-Atlantic to provide you with sustainably raised and delicious proteins, but They've upped the ante yet again, and they now offer delicious cheeses, cow's milk and sheep's milk cheeses that you can subscribe to on a monthly basis, or you can just go ahead and add them to your cart as an add-on at any point. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BarCart. B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country Provisions subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. It's I'm almost getting distracted thinking about how all that fell into place because it's kind of crazy. But what I what I really want to spend a moment to talk about here is the notion of a big uh, sort of Western liquor corporation going into a place in uh, the Caribbean. And basically, taking this flavor that is endemic to that place. So, like, uh, you know, obviously the Dominican Republic is very important to chinola, uh, but taking that flavor and then sort of exporting it. And the question that I want to pose to you, sort of as somebody who is trying to maybe model this to other companies, is how do you avoid the like harmful aspects of appropriation. And um, I, I guess, does, does that make sense? Like, I feel like we're you're, we're just really at risk as a couple of white dudes talking about this to be like, ah, is awesome, great, podcast over and gloss over this question of appropriation. So I wanna pose that to you and see if you have any thoughts about how this can be done well and how that can be avoided, if that makes any sense. It-
1: it makes total sense, and honestly, it is one of the most important questions that all brands need to ask themselves. Am I not only causing cultural appropriation, but am I not taking care of the people that this resonates the most to? It is something that you have to be very sensitive about when building a brand, and you have to realize, at the end of the day, that without the local community on your side, what do you really have down there? When people go to visit, which people will go to visit once you blow up. If people have a negative connotation about you or they go see that this was exploitation, it's probably the worst thing you can do. And we almost made that mistake. I will not lie to you. I first came down and said, guys, we're going to become farmers down here. We're going to buy land and farm this ourselves. And it took me a second after hearing myself say it a few times. I'm like, what the hell am I thinking? No, we need to give this fruit to the locals where they would normally grow crops and you know sell them for pennies on the dollar let's pay the fair wages. In fact, let's pay them a premium. If you hit the standard of growing to this standard, don't put chemicals, don't put pesticides, grow in this fashion, I'd love to pay you more. But it's not just about the money. I think one of the most things that's always overlooked is education for the local community. I think everyone always thinks if you pay someone enough, they'll, they'll go away and the problem's solved, but it's not. How do you build community? It's done through education. It's done from building community centers, helping build schools, building infrastructure. Having cash flow go through a local area. If you went to what we call home, which is Samana, one of the most beautiful places in the world, the northernmost peninsula in Dominican Republic, and you went there 10, 15 years ago, it looks a hell of a lot different than today than it does back then. It's because we have 500 local farming families all helping us, a ton of eco hotels and lodges of people that came down there and wanted to build in a sustainable fashion. And I think by doing just a few of those things to start, and by calling that our home, which I don't think that people consider us tourists anymore. I think they consider us family. We go down there. We've broken bread with everyone. We've stayed in their homes. We've lived side by side with them and in, in no air conditioning, which let me tell you, in a very hot summer day, it is one of the most painful things ever. But, but we live like them. We've had our great time with them. And we go down there. We're not going to a restaurant. We're staying at home with them. We're, we're eating with them. We're bringing our own things to the table. They have Chinola signage. All over El Valle. In fact, our product down there is called El Valle de Chinola, and people are really proud that they're part of this journey. Uh, I think another thing that we do is Chinola is Dominican Republic's only place in the world where Chinola means passion fruit. They call it Mericuya plancha parta. It's it's different around the world, but this was really key to their home, and I think they really embrace it and they feel a sense of pride. If you give a ball of Chinola to a Dominican in the U.S., they say oh my God, as a kid, I ate Chinola. My mom would cut it in half, put a little sugar on it, and we call it breakfast. So I think if anything, we're not trying to hide that fact. We're we're really proud of it. We're really proud that we were able to build with them, build hand by hand. And uh, I think there's only more support coming from our end to theirs.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting to try and zoom in and out a little bit When it comes to the historical legacy here, because just in a little bit of brief research that I was conducting before this, one of the things that I was unaware of was that passion fruit, the English word, and I'm guessing, you know, some sort of Spanish uh, translation of it was actually... A Christian European invention that they were, they referred to the passion fruit as, uh, I guess there was uh, on the flowers, there's these, these little wounds, almost like you'll see like on the dogwood flowers here uh, in the Eastern US. And they uh, apparently, these missionaries used it as an educational tool to teach the indigenous people about the passion of the Christ. And so when you think about the word passion fruit as like, whoa, like suddenly that got real colonial real fast. And to see the actual native Dominican word for the fruit being front and center on the brand, I think that is a really great starting point because you're saying, well, you know, what you might know, bartender A through Z here at Tiki Bar A through Z in the US, as, you know, passion fruit puree or a passion fruit liqueur. Well, really, if you experience this in its best form, in its unmess around with form, it's, it's really called this. And I think that as an entry point to the educational process is really valuable. Does that does does that resonate with you?
1: Uh, absolutely. Like I said, I think education is the most important thing. I think it allows us to get people to question. And the only way to educate someone is if they ask you a question. And so if the first question is, what is Chinola? Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you about Chinola. Well, Chinola actually means passion from the Dominican Republic. And let me tell you about Samanaa. Let me tell you about some of the people down there, what we're doing down there. So I think one of the best things here, you know, some people say, is it from Chicago and New Orleans? Is that why you call it Chinola? And I'm like, no, let me tell you why that's not correct. And it allows a starting point in conversation. And that's the most important thing about bringing this into a bar. How do you start the conversation? And I think mm-hmm. we've done that through there. I think the bottle shows the beauty of the, of the actual fruit itself. It shows the heritage. The neck tag is the Dominican peso. So I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but that, that sticker across the top is the Dominican peso that we put up there. So we're not trying to hide anything. We're, we're proud of it. And I think if you go down there, a lot of people are proud of this as well. We're in all the embassies across the U.S. We meet with the politicians there. They love what we're doing. And again, I think it's a sense of pride because before this, they'd export their passion fruit and to your point, processed and called passion fruit. Uh, there are no brands in the U.S. called Chinola. And so I think by allowing us to tell that story, Versus Merocuya, Pancha, Parcha, every other country now in Central South America says you have to try our passion fruit. Why are you don't buy from us? Uh, and I always have to tell them, Dominican is my second home at this point, so uh, <laughs> it is what it is. But but we love trying new products. So
0: yeah, uh, well, I really appreciate you being honest about your uh, the evolution of your thinking about you know how to be sort of a responsible business partner to the people who are growing this fruit as opposed to somebody who's just like, I want that flavor, I want it in a bottle, see ya. Um, so it, it was really, really nice to to hear how your thoughts evolved. Uh, now, I wanna get back to the cocktail side because earlier in this conversation, we mentioned a titan of the cocktail world, St. Germain, of course, bartender's ketchup. Uh, they preceded you by a couple years, it seems. How did you see... Uh, Chinola become adopted into the cocktail space? And what are your favorite ways that you've seen bartenders use it? And obviously like the first starting point is like, suddenly we've got a a shelf stable citrus almost. Uh, But like beyond that, like what are your favorite ways? Like when you walk into a bar and you see a bartender do X with Chinola or try and use it in this way, like Like what, what are those moves that get you really excited uh, from a flavor perspective?
1: Yeah. uh, Great, great question. Uh, You know, first of all, talking about the product itself, the versatility, I I think the best part was the the challenge behind it. It's got a really great viscosity. It's got Mm. a really great nose to it. I think one of the most important things we can do is liquid to lips. I think it's a missed area where a lot of brands fail is that they want to be on social media. I want my boots on the ground to taste people on this if you look at this bottle and then you open it and smell it, most people are like, wow, it's the shock factor saying this has a real nose. This is real fruit. In fact, there are six to eight fruits in every one of those bottles, which is really important to us. So you have this viscosity, which adds a nice little texture to the drink. And then we challenge people. You know, one of the drinks at the easiest level that really stage just is called the chismosa. Chismosa means people that gossip in Spanish. It is a perfect brunch cocktail. As you might assume, it is sparkling wine and chinola. So it basically makes mimosa a little more boozy with a passion fruit hint to it. And that was a big savior for us. When COVID hit, a lot of bartenders like my friends were furloughed or they were understaffed. And how do you help bang out a ton of drinks at once? You pour four ounces of sparkling wine, an ounce of chanel onto it, a little higher boozy mimosa. And, and you've got a drink right there that actually tastes amazing. And then how do you get at-home consumers who may be intimidated by a 10-step cocktail, five-step cocktail? You say, hey, buy two bottles of sparkly wine, buy one bottle of this, impress your friends. You've made them a drink. Those were the great stepping stones into this. And then people started to challenge a little bit. There was the margarita. There was the daiquiri. Uh, and then we started to get interesting with it. My friend was making this beer shandy. He was using chanel as a floater, which I was intrigued about at first. I had to go visit him. I was like, what beer are you using? What are you doing? And it was an IPA. And I'm like, guys, that, that's a little too aggressive. Let's, let's go with a, a light beer here and try it. And we balanced it out, and it it was so simplistic. It was delicious. Then I think the real highlight was when we figured out the spicy mezcal margarita. It is now (laughs) one of our staples. It is smoky. It is spicy. It's citrusy, sweet. It hits you on every single angle. And I was really excited about that. But I think the most exciting one I had, I think it was either at Employees Only or Macau Trading Co., was they made a scotch cocktail. Scotch whiskey. In my wildest dreams did I ever imagine our... Passion fruit liqueur would be blended with scotch to make a cocktail and it was delicious. And then I said, All right, you've done that. Let's make a sour with it. Let's throw a little egg white into there. What we started to really realize is that possibilities were endless and it was up to the imagination. And I can always give you my cocktail sheet. We've got hundreds of drink creations on it, but that is an inspiration. Everyone should have their own twist on how to play with it. And they did. You know, some bars I go into, they want the inspiration. Other ones say, listen, I'm a professional, let let me do my thing. And you don't offend me whatsoever. I'm here to give you uh, our, our playbook whenever you want it. At the same time, people have had fun creating new things. And uh, we've had a great time you know, doing our brand research for me, which is a 24-7 job. If you guys ever want to come find me out at a bar, uh, what we call brand research until they stop paying me to do it. I think they would called something else. But uh, <laughs> that, that's been the journey so far.
0: One of the things that strikes me about Passion Fruit is that it is simultaneously exciting and comforting. As a flavor, it's exciting because it has that citric tang to it. It's exciting because, in addition to, you know, just like a straight lemon or lime, it's got more flavor going on. But it's also comforting in that passion fruit has been exported to the US for a long time and it's been used in a lot of what we might call like childhood flavors. All right, so I remember when I was a kid, my mom would go to the supermarket, we'd get the cans of juicy juice that you'd have to open with the punch and uh, blend with you know sort of like constant, sort of like, a, like a weak concentrate maybe, and pour that into the pitcher and blend it. And I remember that my favorite one was the what was called tropical, right? Uh, there was definitely passion fruit flavoring in that cocktail that that cock juice cocktail. Uh and so when I when I tasted the Chinola, of course I was excited by the mouthfeel and the beautiful velvety viscosity. Of course I was excited by the orange color, but I was also sent straight back to some really fond childhood memories by the fact that oh, I know this flavor. This is just the grown-up and really Finest version of that flavor. Do you ever, do you ever get people, uh, getting sort of like, uh, taste bud nostalgic on you when they taste this?
1: It's, it's funny because I've done a lot of trade shows and not all just spirit trade shows with normal consumers that come up and they try and they're like, what is this? This tastes very familiar to me. Is, is this a mix of orange juice and mango and this, but no, it tastes different. And, and it's in the back of their tongue. And I'm like, this is passion fruit oh, my God, you know, I've seen that on a flavor profile. I've seen it there, but never by itself. Unless you're drinking the series, uh, the the juice company, it's never by itself. So it takes people a little bit of shock. And, again, one of my favorite things is because once I can engage you like that and you have the nostalgia, I can go back to telling the story. And the story Mm -hmm. is really important to us. So I think the flavor profile in the U.S. has been a little slow to follow on. I would blame the big orange juice companies who didn't want someone taking the, any of their shelf space away from them. But you go to Europe, Asia, Australia, Central, South America, this is a childhood staple by itself. And in the US, I'm starting to see the trend pick up. But as a kid, yeah, I would see artificial flavors, passion fruit here. Anytime you're talking about a tropical or warm destination, you couldn't make a blended juice without passion fruit being part of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the pog, you know, if you go back to the story of pog Juice son, on the uh, in Hawaii, uh, passion fruit is the pea in pog. Well, what are we missing about the story of chinola? It seems like we've got the origin story, we've got your, your legacy, we've got the origin story of how chinola was created, we've got a lot of the fascinating details about how uh, it goes from the vine to the bottle, we've got some cocktail applications, which are pretty much wide open, uh, and I'm really excited to play around with my bottle here. I think the logical place for us to go next is: what does the future look like for Chinola? What are you excited to do with this brand moving forward? And are there any uh, personal projects for you, for Andrew Marinoff, that uh, that you're really excited about uh, in the coming year or two?
1: Yeah, you know, I think like for most brands, COVID was really tough on us. We you know, my, my partner and I were both industry. You know, we have we our past is in this industry. We came together. We saw what Diageo's, Bruno, what well, they were doing wrong, and we said we want to fix this. But we did in on the on premise. So when the world shut down, like most brands, we lost over ninety percent of our business in the course of two weeks. Said this is doomsday, and you know we felt bad for ourselves. But again, it was one of those things where we were thinking about ourselves, and it took me a while to snap out of it and realize we can't fail. We have help farmers down there. We have a community down there that's expecting us to succeed, and not just from a success of happiness, to put food on their tables. So we pivoted the business very quickly to win the off-premise. And we, we picked up a lot of volume there. The following year, we grew the business by 480%. We became one of the fastest growing cordials in the Southeast. We really started to realize how to hone in and win the off-premise consumer along with the on-premise consumer. The on premise consumer is great because I need to win my bartenders. The you know, when I go home, I make a few drinks, maybe more than a few drinks a day. But the average consumer is making six day drinks at home. The bartenders are making a few hundred to two thousand drinks a day. And so we never give up on them during COVID. In fact, we use them. You're sitting at home, how about you make a drink? We'll throw on our social media, we'll say, Here's the cocktail by this person. We'll you know, we'll help put some money in your pocket to help spread the word and make sure you can succeed with us. We're now in 26 states across the US, about 11 countries now. And I think we've really honed in our territory. And now instead of going wider, it's going deeper into those markets. And you would be shocked going to a state like Georgia and you will see chinola everywhere. And it took us a while to figure out how to do that. But we were really excited to. I think when you're looking at where we're very happy about and the validation, it's come from two awards. And I was never big on the whole awards thing. You know, I, I couldn't tell because. I would say that some of them were like a pay to play type thing. Oh, everyone gets a trophy at this game we're playing, but we just did a uh, San Francisco spirits competition, which I think is the highest accolade. And we won double gold, which means we had a perfect score from every single judge there. And those judges are people that we respect in the industry. And it was a blind tasting. And it was really important to us from there. We did LA spirits competition. And this is where we're going to stop while we're up. Cause we don't want to go back there, but, uh, uh, they gave us a platinum award and named us the best liqueur of 2022. Why that was important isn't just the award. It's validation from the industry that we've done something correctly, which we've been waiting for for seven years for someone to tell us that. And so it, it, was, a, it was a really, really good feeling. And now the idea is how do we expand not only here, but how do we really start to make an impact in the Dominican Republic? What is, what is the impact that looks like down there? How are we going to expand that territory, get this into every hand down there? Um, And then how do we do good by the world? How do we expand this flavor profile, continue to educate, continue to do liquid to lips? And we're really excited for what the future holds. You know, on a a personal front, I've I've been fortunate enough to be able to build a few distilleries around the world. I'm very excited by it. And if you ask anyone, and they say, what am I most proud of? And of course, Proxima won't like my answer. You know, Great Jones, of course, was a seven year feat of mine that was really fun and a beautiful distillery. But Chinola was something that when I first found the product, it was separating, the labels were falling off, the caps weren't open. I mean, you want to talk about a true building of a brand, not well-funded, only three of us at the helm of this thing. And now we've grown into a team I'm really proud of across the U.S. And I think we're going to continue to grow that team, continue to grow, and still take our focus on those A and B accounts, which were really prevalent in the U.S.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed over just the past couple of years, I've I've been aware of Chinola um, for a few years, but just in the last calendar year, I have heard it from the mouths of a lot of bartenders here in D.C., And so I think it's really great proof of exactly what you were saying of like, you're really starting, instead of of trying to go wider, you're really going deeper and you're really doubling down and reinvesting in the markets uh, where people are already passionate about this stuff. And I I think that that's um, really paying off. So congrats. I mean, uh, amazing accolades. Uh, Those are two real big ones that you just mentioned. And uh, I think that we're just going to continue to see more and more from Chinoa. and on the packaging front, man, I sympathize. Uh, uh, packaging is my least favorite uh, aspect of, of, uh, being somebody who also tries to, you know, put, put bottles on shelves, uh, with our, I just finished a, a big redesign on our, uh, cocktail bitters packaging. So I'm sympathetic with you there. Uh, but before we, uh, jump into a couple lightning round questions, do you have any like requests or recommendations for our listeners? Where would you point them towards, uh, if they wanted to taste Chinola, pick up a bottle themselves and, uh, any, any requests from them, uh, from, from you? Yeah, you know,
1: first of all, as a request, we love seeing new cocktails, we love seeing recipes and the creation past the spicy mark past the sour. So anyone that has any cocktails, please send them to our social media account. We love to post about it. Uh, You know, we have a pretty, pretty good following really industry heavy, take a photo of it. And we'd love to support you guys when it comes to purchasing it. You know, thankfully, our website tells you all the liquor stores, but total wine, ABC crown. So all, all the big box stores and independent is next. So ask for an independent retailer if they have it. If not, they should take it in and uh, you know help spread the word because the big box is great, but India is how this industry really survives. Um, and the, the last request is just have fun with it. You know It's not an overcomplicated thing. I think the best the best thing I could say is liquid to lips is key. Open the bottle and just smell it. And then I think you're going to understand this entire podcast, what we've been talking about. Eric, you've had the privilege of trying it during this podcast. I might have snuck in a little bit myself. On this fun early morning, um, but yeah, I think once you try it, you get it right away. You realize that we're not we're not lying. There are no additives. There are no preservatives. There's no flavoring. There's no coloring. What you see is what you get. And people have tried to make a fresh fruit liqueur before, but we had the fortune of using old world techniques, new world techniques, paying homage to old school European style liqueurs while kind of leading the way in the future on how we're going to keep these shelves stable
0: and going on a global trend. I love it. And remember kids, passion fruit is orange, not pink. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Andrew, a couple quick lightning round questions. You game? Let's do it. All right. Desert Island scenario. We're going to take Chinola off the table. Oh, not going to make this too easy for you. Desert Island scenario, aside from Chinola, which would be wonderful on a desert island. uh, What one cocktail would you bring along and what one bottle, a single spirit or, or mixer would you bring along?
1: So deserted island, I think I'm thinking warm, tropical, etc. What I like to drink when it's warm out, which is a misconception, is something spicy. Spicy cools me down. So on mm-hmm. that island, I'm going to try to grow jalapenos and lime. I'm bringing down the, some mezcal. Hopefully you let me have one bottle of chenola and my spicy mezcal margarita is the one thing that's going to keep, uh, keep me smiling on that island. The mezcal itself, I, there's so many amazing ones. What I would suggest is go down to where mezcal is actually made and try the ones that will never leave that country because they make 2,000 bottles a year. Go do that, and then you're going to really understand what a real Mezcal is.
0: Totally, totally. And uh, Our friends over at uh, Agave Road Trip, uh, for anyone wanting to learn more about Mezcal, check out Lou and Chava on the Agave Road Trip podcast. Uh, Next, if you could have a cocktail with one person, past or present, live or dead, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink and enjoy with them? Just kind of paint us a picture.
1: Absolutely. And and, and I'm going to cheer on this one a little bit because i got to have two people. I want both my great-grandpas on both sides, from the Hiram Walker side to my dad's side. I am bringing them to a very fun dive bar, probably illegal at the time, probably illegal now. Uh, Honestly, I think we're going to be purists. I think we'd be drinking a really nice whiskey, trading stories. I think this is a dark place. I think that it's reminiscent of the Prohibition era to put them in their comfort zone. And I want to hear stories. I want to hear how this happened, because I'm sure there's a lot of things that were never told. And my dream would be able to uncover some of those stories that, unfortunately, when my grandpa passed away, I was too young to hear. And now I think I'm ready. And, you know, we we know a few of them. We don't know a few other ones. That it would be the most exciting thing possible for me.
0: Well, I think you—you know—you've you've survived a pandemic. You've—you've you've gone through your own trials and tribulations in uh, branding, product development, and distributions, just like I'm sure that they did. So I'm sure that would be a really fun conversation, uh, just like this one was. Andrew Marinoff, uh, thank you so much for sharing Shinola with me, sharing the stories, sharing the techniques, sharing the things that you've learned and the things that you've evolved to understand as both a thinker and uh, a business person. And thank you, most importantly, for being a guest right here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast.
1: Absolutely. I really appreciate your time today. Those were very, very intriguing questions. And I look forward to meeting you for a drink one day. Absolutely. Cheers. Hey, have a good one. Thank you.
0: This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, brand building and tropical fruit insights courtesy of Andrew Marinoff, co-founder of Chinola Liqueur, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.